really spent probably the last six months or so since I last talked to you, mostly just focused on stability, focused on security, and just kind of maturing up the fundamentals of that chain before we wanted to move on and added like new major features like Thorfi, synthetics, uh, adding more chains, like all this stuff. We wanted to kind of put that on pause. Let's, let's put, you know, put that off until we kind of figure out that the base layer is more secure, more reliable, more resilient, all these things. I live unbanked off of cryptocurrency, and I use BitRefill extensively because it lets me pay with crypto at places that don't yet accept it directly. This one service, more than any other, helps me live on crypto. Pay your prepaid phone bill, or buy gift cards to thousands of major retailers around the world, all with cryptocurrency, including for exact amounts so you don't have to buy more gift credit than you need for a specific purchase. You can use BitRefill without an account, but if you get an account, you can earn rewards points, which translate to savings, and you can also hold a balance denominated in dollars or euros to protect yourself against market crashes. Go to bitrefill.com, click Create Account, and enter the referral code DCN, or follow the link in the description. So, hey everyone, I have once again the wonderful honor of speaking with the one and only Chad Barefoot, newly, I guess, core dev of ThorChain. How's it going, man? <laughs> How's it going? Good, good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back as well. It's um, it's crazy to think just how much has transpired in the last six, eight, nine months. I don't remember how long it's been since the last time we talked, but you know, new year, new me. Might as well, you know, dive into stuff a little bit more. Um, I yeah. feel like Thorchain was much less on people's radar way back when, and now it's kind of a a bigger thing, and still, I think, very under the radar, which is very bizarre to me. Yeah, you know what? It's funny. Uh, I I don't have a good sense of like how on the radar or off the radar the project is, to be honest with you, because my head's mm-hmm. down in code all the day, and so I really don't um, keep I put my head up much. But mm-hmm. like, I always kind of thought of it was more on the radar because we were doing something that nobody's ever done before. We're, we're basically creating new technology that or innovation that's never existed before, and it completely changes the. Uh, the, the the state of crypto in general. So I just assumed that, that this would kind of catch on fire in some sense to some degree just because of that value proposition. Mm-hmm. But like when I did some a couple of conferences uh, not too long ago and I was just kind of chatting with other speakers and, and whatever. And I was kind of surprised how like little people even knew what ThorChain was, like mm-hmm. even heard of it. And I was just like, oh, this is kind of interesting. This is kind of surprising to me. But you're right. It's quite actually under the radar. And even now, I, I still think it's under the radar. Like, I don't think it's really quite, people quite re- recognize uh, what it is or what it does. And even if they do, they have a very simplistic perspective of it or like an overly simplified version of it. Like somebody who says that Bitcoin is a, uh, a digital money. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. But like, there's, a lot there's something much more significant happening here if you kind of look between the lines and dive a bit deeper. Um, and so I get the kind of feeling sense that Thorchain is kind of that same um, sense in the earlier days of, of, of Bitcoin in some sense. Yeah, and that's um, that might be a good, almost backwards way of starting things. Who else is doing this, as far as you know, who's doing the, I would say, it doesn't have to be 100% the exact same thing, but just native cross-chain decentralized exchange and liquidity protocol. I remember seeing some, mentioned that someone is forking Thorchain to make a competing complementary whatever but other than that i haven't heard anything is anyone else trying to do the same thing oh yeah i mean whenever you have um 
a successful network, you will likely have um, forks and mm-hmm. competitors and like that's just a natural thing to occur. Uh, I mean, Ohm is a good example that like Ohm had launched their thing and there's been like, I don't know how many forks, right? And that's mm-hmm. largely because Ohm is an interesting design. It's a, it's a novel uh, concept mm-hmm. and people get excited about it. And Thorchain is a bit similar in that sense in that it's a novel concept, a novel idea that um, offers some real value. And so, yeah, there are a bunch of people out in the space who are doing cross-chain DEXs or cross-chain swaps um, in, in different ways. And, and they have different value in the way that they approach it. Some are um, oftentimes these, uh, you know, if you want to call them competitors, uh, they have half solutions to the problem of cross-chain. Like they only will mm-hmm. ever work with, you know, chains, you know, A, B, and C, but never work with chains D, E, and F, right? And so that then becomes like kind of a half solution to the problem. Uh, some of them kind of like kind of completely ignore economic risks to the design, uh, which is uh, a bit funny for me. Hmm. Um, uh, some actually, you know, use uh, a design uh, different from Thorchains, like largely based on Thorchains, but they make some small, small modifications to it that end up uh, harming the economic design quite significantly. Um, and even some like are, they sound like they're competitors, but they're not like, you know, layer zero um and and ipc are both you know cross-chain communication standards rather than actual bridges per se mm-hmm. um and so they're not quite competitors in, in, in any um sense of that this from my viewpoint and then we have like these forks i've seen probably maybe like two or three forks uh if somebody's forked the code into their separate repo and i think uh there's one that's just started called maya protocol that's um starting up uh, or starting to be worked on at least. Uh, and we've, as a team, the core devs have kind of given some advice, you know, and tips and, mm-hmm. and, and their design and implementation and we'll see how it goes. But, but all those things, I mean, forks are actually a good thing, right? We always have said from the beginning that, uh, Thorchain should not be the only thing in existence in terms of, you know, moving liquidity from one asset or one chain to another. They want to have a healthy eco- uh, ecosystem within crypto. We need you know, four or five or so, you know, you know, different systems that can all kind of operate. Um, so Thorchain is kind of the, the the biggest guy in the room, right? And it's kind of the first mover in, in many respects. And, and in my opinion, by far the, the strongest design and implementation. Um, but I'm sure we're going to see other, you know, uh, forks and in, in competing concepts. And I, you know, encourage them to come along and to, you know, provide more reach, more uh, value and more uh, um, service to the the greater crypto sphere. Yeah, and that's one reason why I would call myself like a DeFi dinosaur a little bit because I kind of I've been in this space for like eight years, but I didn't get DeFi until relatively soon. In fact, I didn't really get it fully until I found out about Thorchain because all the other stuff just didn't make sense to me. It's like okay, so I have a bunch of different assets. Why would I? get ethereum specifically pay a bunch of fees of course that's a different subject but then mm-hmm. get some little token that still requires ethereum to move around and then put it on a thing where i swap it for a thing and then get a, a, a wrapped asset of this thing on something else and it, it just didn't un- like people were just talking about DeFi's revolutionary and just thought it was like some weird dumb gambly thing but it wasn't until like with thorchain you could kind of do some of that stuff without the wrapping and just like a, I should give a um, sort of a, a user experience flow example of doing DeFi on like a di- on a non completely native cross chain deck. So I was using, I don't know if you're aware of uh, incognito, but it was mm-hmm. another uh, 
I hope it's still going to be working for a while because it's still pretty interesting. But the user experience process of using that for me is you deposit a coin, you wait until you get this little wrapped asset, that then you need some sort of the actual native token to provide as gas, even though it's a dust amount or whatever. And then you swap it for another wrapped version of that. And then maybe you can withdraw on the other end. And whenever I've swapped something with ThorChain, I swap, I hit swap, and I get the new thing. And mm -hmm. that's just it. And just all that yep. crap in between. No, no, not talking talking down because there's a lot of uh, interesting and like utility and other use cases behind the in-between stuff. But all that stuff in between is, I think, probably why people don't really get DeFi in general. I don't know if you'd kind of agree with that. Yeah. So, like, um, DeFi has um, tremendous potential behind it. Mm -hmm. But it also has, um, whenever you have something that's innovative, you also have, you have like the innovators who are just idealistic and see what the value can be. And then you always have people who are like there for the opportunity, right? Like for the, yeah. for the, the ability to see the number go up. Do you know what I mean by that? Like there are a lot of people who just like buy and sell Bitcoin all day and trade and whatever, like, mm -hmm. you know, between stable coins and Bitcoin trying to play the market. And that's what they're interested in. They're just interested mm -hmm. in, you know, increasing their net worth effectively. And they completely miss like the the amazing uh, um, revolution that Bitcoin fundamentally is, and they just completely ignore that component. That's like mm. the thing of actual value, at least in my yeah, view. Of course. Like, the actual revolution in like in, in in human rights, as I see it, in self sovereignty and freedom that's granted to all peoples across the entire planet, no matter where you live. And that's just like monumental by itself. And so DeFi is a little bit similar in the sense that it has great potential to actually mm -hmm. give uh, a huge movement in terms of, of human rights, allowing everybody to be have, have access to financial services across the entire planet, no matter where you live, is like revolutionary. That can change everything. Mm -hmm. But you also have these people who just have the opportunity to be like, to be degens, right? And just, or like degenerative gamblers in a sense, mm -hmm. and be able to like, oh, I'm gonna like move the thing to here and then get the like yield on that. And then I'm gonna take that like asset that I get from this and I'm gonna move it over here. And, and they start like compounding their interest across like five different smart contracts to create this massive yield system that's like completely built on fragility and like you know and liquidations and like all these risks and so they and then some people do that and that, that that's your bag and that's your bag and that's there's nothing there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that um but DeFi is, is so much more than that as, as i like to think about it as right and i think what thorchain's doing to your point what you were saying to give your example is that in the earlier days of DeFi, the only place you could really do it was Ethereum. And with that came limitations of what was possible. And, and then you had to do all these wrapped assets things and the security of those wrapped assets are always highly questionable, whether you know it's a centralized bridge or decentralized bridge or how decentralized that bridge is. And, and as long as you hold that wrapped asset, you're always exposed to the risk of the bridge underneath it. There's all these issues and problems. And so ThorChain uh, in many respects came along and, and was really, in my opinion, the first DeFi protocol that was just like, you know what, we're going to allow DeFi to exist on any and all chains mm -hmm. and have everybody have it be a, a first class citizen, whether you're Bitcoin or a Dozier, uh, mm -hmm. Ethereum person, you know, a Cardano fan, like whatever camp you kind of tend to sit in, 
everybody's a first class citizen and everybody has access to the same financial services no matter where you're coming from. And that's how it really should be. Like the idea that I'm only going to provide services for like these people or these assets is kind of like a self-defeating concept. It's like it's a nonsensical like limitation you're putting on yourself. It's like saying I'm going to build a company and I'm only going to sell it to the Japanese. Like I'm not going to sell my my product to the Australians or to the yeah. Italians or whatever. It's just a bit silly in, in, from a fundamental perspective. And so ThorChain is like, we don't care who you are. We don't care what asset you're talking about. We're going to provide the same exact services no matter where you are. And by doing so, like we're about to add, uh, add Dogecoin in the very near future. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, we're adding DeFi to Doge, which mm-hmm. is, in my opinion, like the biggest news event in Doge history. Ever since Doge yeah. was like created, you know, way back. Yeah, legitimately like eight, eight the biggest ago. news event, maybe in terms biggest of popularity, the second biggest after Elon noticed it. But that's a yeah, different, well, that's a different <laughs> spectrum. Elon's Elon's a, a planet mm-hmm. himself, and he a lot of things mm-hmm. revolve around him in a sense. But like mm-hmm. from a fundamental, like the fact that Elon backs Doge from a fundamentalist perspective doesn't really matter. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't who like it just creates a perception of, mm-hmm. of value, right? But ThorChain is doing something that actually is changing the fundamentals fundamentally yes. of Doge because now only are you capable of trading in and out of Doge without going through a centralized party and going mm-hmm. completely and staying decentralized and be able to move out in and as as free and as often as you choose. But you can also now earn Doge on your Doge, like layer mm-hmm. one do earn layer one Doge on your layer one Doge, like that is a fundamental change in the actual. Um, ecosystem of the doge like community right mm. that's a massive 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 thing and i hope the doge community kind of like realizes right uh, yeah yeah i mean that's something that i've noticed uh it inherently enhances the i guess productivity of all the chains it supports because in the past like i remember when you know you had like the master co- the master node coin boom where everyone was like well you can just have your coin sit there, but if you get one of these coins and you lo- and you run a special node and stuff like that, you get like interest on your on your money, basically, like without trusting a, a centralized company or anything. But that was yep. limited to certain assets. But now it's like every everything can kind of do that now. Just like you know, in the past, the altcoin boom, I guess, of twenty seventeen or before, whenever, is was more characterized by special feature coins. And in the future, or I dare I say the present, it's more like it's available to everyone. And that's also a limitation that I think that people don't necessarily appreciate of all these different uh, DeFi protocols on different chains where, okay, like you got, you got Ethereum and then you got Pulse Chain. People are saying, oh, Pulse Chain is going to like do everything that Ethereum does, but like better, but then have all the same assets on it or something like that. And then you have like Binance Smart Chain doing their stuff. And then you have, you know, Smart BCH built on Bitcoin Cash. You have all these kinds of things. But it just now all the assets are just their new set of assets on their new chain. And it's just annoying as anything to swap in between, right? To get like, yeah, like Tether. Yeah. Oh, Tether's on this thing. Okay. Well, but does the Tether on Ethereum match with the Tether? on tron for example like does it match not really kind of but not really and the limitation of that just isn't really the same if you have something that's actually cross-chain yeah yeah absolutely you you have to remember that 
with every one of these layer ones that pop up, like Binance Smart Chain, mm-hmm. for example, you have to have what's the the medium of transfer from one mm-hmm. from one side to the other side. Now, between EVM to EVM, that's a relatively easy problem to solve. It's been around for quite a while because it abstracts. You don't have to solve a deeper issue. It's just easier to build. And we've seen a bunch of these bridges already exist because that's the low hanging fruit to solve. Mm-hmm. But like even something like Binance Smart Chain, it its value proposition is, hey, we're Ethereum, but it's more centralized and it has lower gas fees. That's its its value proposition. There's mm-hmm. nothing fundamental about that, right? It doesn't yeah. do anything more than what Ethereum already does. It just says we're just a cheaper version. And now the the the, the sphere has said that that's valuable because mm-hmm. a lot of shrimps can't use Ethereum because it's like 300 bucks to do a you know, transaction sometimes, yeah. right? Like Me, I can't use Ethereum. I have of, so much random yeah. Ethan tokens locked up that if I touch them, they just explode from in value. They would just lose destroyed. a lot of their, you know, you know your, their value to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. In some sense. But we have to get away from the idea. In, in 2017 was full and we still see some projects today that are, mm-hmm. are so focused on like glory stats Right, like mm-hmm. oh, we can do ten thousand transactions per second. Like it's mm-hmm. as if like that is meaningful. Like it's, to my opinion, mm-hmm. it's not. Like Bitcoin Cash said that oh, we can do more transactions per second than Bitcoin. Therefore, we're better than Bitcoin. Therefore, we are more valuable than Bitcoin. No, that's not quite how it actually works. It's not that you know, it's glory stats don't get you as far as you think it does. And so you, what you what you really want to look for in layer ones, in my opinion, is what are they doing that is actually a value proposition. And if their value proposition is like, we can do what you can already do just a little bit faster, I'm a little bit skeptical about what the value proposition actually is there, you know? Yeah, that's for sure. Well, while we're talking about all this cool stuff that is enabled by ThorChain, and obviously the fact that it kind of stands almost alone in that no one else is really doing anything similar, that of course includes a lot of growing pains and bumps along the road in the well uh, I guess well dubbed chaos net, and so <laughs> last year there's been a cert- there was a certain amount of uh, chaos on the chaos net. Uh, would you mind giving just like a brief rundown of of sort of the, some of the mayhem that happened last year? Yeah, sure. So the the short of it is that the network was exploited a couple times. In total, it took I think the the, the, hat, the black hats or white hats, however you want to define them. Um, took, I think it was like around $15 million or so. All of it from Ethereum-based exploits and, hmm. and how Ethereum is very, Solidity is a very, relatively speaking, very easy thing to manipulate uh, with smart contracting. So people found some issues and they abused those issues to extract funds. Now the network was in, you know, as, as you said, chaos net. So it's limited the, the on purpose how much TVL could be in the network. Mm-hmm. So that the amount of funds available to steal was relatively small, right? Like we've seen, uh, you know, other projects like Compound and Poly and Badger and all these things like are over well over a hundred million dollars in assets, mm-hmm. you know, taken. Um, so that was that was the the rough of it. And so once that happened, the community kind of said, "Let's slow down. Let's let's kind of take a step back. Let's kind of reevaluate things. Make sure we're all on a good on a good path here, right?" And so the network was uh, paused by the community. They chose to do to do so. Uh, and then we did multiple audits. I mean, I lost track of how many, and it was mm-hmm. two externals. I don't know how many internals, a bunch of researchers, did some um, unofficial ones as well. Um, there's a complete change in terms of like the security. 
uh, we added an entire new team on, 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 the, on the ThorChain project called ThorSec that is 100% dedicated to reviewing every PR, every code change, and mm -hmm. basically trying to attack it 24-7, you know, more or less. Um, we had a new like security um, functionality, like, like new um, blanketed protections on the network. So you, mm -hmm. so you if somebody were to find an exploit now, um, it would be hard to extrapolate uh, funds. Uh, all that kind of stuff, like a whole whole series of things happened. So the, we really spent probably the last six months or so since I la last talked to you, mostly mm -hmm. just focused on stability, focused on security, and just kind of maturing up the fundamentals of that chain before we wanted to move on and added like new major features like Thorify, Synthetics, uh, adding more chains, like all this stuff. We wanted to kind of put that on pause. Let's let's put you know put that off until we kind of figure out that the base layer is more secure, more reliable, more resilient, all these things. So that's basically what we've been doing for a long period of time. And we've hired in a whole series of individuals, external teams, internal teams, uh, all sorts of things just to ensure that that is as buttoned up and as tight as humanly possible. Yeah. And so first off, how were the results of that? Are they to your satisfaction? And the next thing is these sort of exploit, I mean, and just going from you know the the smack talk you hear around, uh, is this just a natural thing that has to happen as a new protocol grows, or were there maybe some corners cut in how quickly things were pushed to release? Um, okay, so the first part of your question was, yes. am I as satisfied? Are you satisfied today, uh, or as satisfied yeah. as one could reasonably be in such a rapidly evolving landscape? Yes, so. When we approached this problem months ago, we, we made mm -hmm. a list of every reasonable thing we can think of to implement or to change or to whether that be code, whether that be policy, whether that be, you know, something else. Like we just made a whole series of things. We made, we made a, a an official bug bounty program. We had a bug bounty program before, but we just didn't make it like official program. Yeah. So like we did a whole series of things, the, the, everything we could reasonably think of. And we implemented every single one of those things. And it took a, it took a very long period of time to do that. It's a lot of coaching. There's a lot of um, pulling in a bunch of teams. I, you know, supported some of these uh, audit teams to make mm -hmm. sure they have all their answers, the questions answered, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, we before we actually start things up again, we want to make sure we felt good about the state of things, right? Now that being said, it doesn't matter how many audits you do. It doesn't matter what changes you make. It doesn't matter what you do. You will never know if there are more exploits or not. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's, there's not, a, there's no mechanism. There's no way you can ever realize because it's a, it's a known unknown. You know that you don't know it. Right. And so we could have exploits 10 years from now. Right. Or any change for that matter. It doesn't matter. Like any project can have an exploit. Like comp, right. Had an exploit, you know, it was like five, six years after it was launched where it had $130 million of comp tokens. Right. And that's not, I'm not saying that as like a dig at comp comp's a great project with a smart team behind it. Right. Like I'm not saying that at all. Mm -hmm. It's just the natural thing of software. Right. Of course. So in the beginning, it always starts off when it's the most immature, right. And the mm -hmm. most, and not as hardened. And as time goes on, you find bugs and you find issues, you fix them and you patch them as you go, as you go along. Now as for a good software, uh, for a good code base, what you will naturally find is that the further down the, like the line you go, the mm -hmm. timeline, you will find that the, the bugs that you're finding are increasingly less significant in terms of like their impact. Uh, they're going to become more rare and the scenario of which they are triggered will become increasingly more edge case or more kind of mm -hmm. weird situations. Right. And that's exactly what we, we've been you know, observing in, in Thorchain's case uh, in general. 
Um, so we are definitely in a, in a very stronger point at this point from a security perspective. Absolutely. Is the chain more reliable? Absolutely. That is like a hands down. There's no hesitation on that. But I will never say, you will never catch me saying that we are bug free. We are exploit free. There'll never be a case where that happens. Even Bitcoin had an infinite mint bug like 10 years after it was like launched. Right. Yeah. Like, and that has 800 contributors, you know, over a long period of time. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's, you will never be in that state. Bitcoin will never be in that state. No asset, no, no chain, no, nothing will ever mm -hmm. be like that. So we have to think about it in those terms, not think about it as like, okay, now it's secure. We did an audit, so it's it's fine now. Like you can't have that mentality. That's like a, it's a very wrong yeah. mentality. That being said, you can't have a mentality where it's like, all right, this is reasonably secure enough that you're willing to consider it to be like as a mainnet ready, which sort of brings me to mainnet. So yep. mainnet in most, I guess, crypto projects means you're dealing with real money, which ChaosNet has are his. Well, not mainnet has kind of been a mainnet under those conditions. Now, right. real mainnet, first off, how far are we away from that? And what all does it include that's above and beyond the current chaos net stat? Yeah, so you're right. So most projects will just like launch mainnet immediately with real funds and then like throw caution into the wind and like whatever happens, happens. Like, mm -hmm. And we've seen projects that like launch and then like day two, there's some exploit where like, all the money is lost, like 1.4. I remember mm -hmm. one was like $1.4 billion or something like, like insane. <laughs> like, you know hilarious. what I mean? I remember projects like hundreds of millions of dollars, mm -hmm. like, oops, there we go. Like, so ThorChain has been, had a much more guarded launch in the way that Athol thinks about things. Mm -hmm. And that's partially because the project is far more difficult and ambitious and complex than almost every other DeFi protocol in crypto. It's like, it's much more difficult task. That's why nobody's done it before. Like that's, that's why we're we're yeah, like blazing the trail here because like, like I remember I was talked to you know uh, somebody over at um, a very very well known uh, mm -hmm. DeFi protocol, and I asked that person like, why didn't you include Bitcoin in this cross chain thing that you're going to be building? And he said because it's too hard. <laughs> Bitcoin. Not yeah, he's like, no, Bitcoin. Bitcoin's too hard to integrate. It's blah blah blah, which which he's right. It is very difficult. It's very hard, mm -hmm. right? And and but like we we keep, we have to think about what our vision is here. It's not like, do you want to make the next evolutionary step in in DeFi or do you want to make the next revolutionary step in DeFi? And if you're excluding Bitcoin from your mentality, then you you're basically like taking the the easy road, the, the low hanging mm -hmm. fruit road, and not thinking about what the what the actual community of crypto actually needs, which is support for if any chain, including the, the biggest and most important chain in crypto, which is obviously, you know, Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So where are we, where are we is as far as like how far are we to mainnet and what new stuff does it have? Yes. Okay. So mainnet is, um, is approximately maybe like a month away. If, if you ask mm -hmm. me. It requires the community to get involved to be okay with this and to be a part of the process. It's not my decision personally, uh, but in my view, I think it's. I think it'll be probably here within the next month. What is needed before we get, get to that point? Um, we wanted to add a few more chains, so we'll probably see Doge added, um, Terra added, and possibly Adam mm -hmm. or Ga the Gaia chain. Um, we want to remove the caps on the on the um, system. So that you can add liquidity all day long if you really wanted to. Um, and then 
we also wanted to make sure that the reserve has the full amount of funds. Right now, it's like, I think it's um, half of the amount that it should have, right? And so over time, we wanted to increase that until we get to that maintenance status. I think those are the three things like that I think off the top of my head. I might be missing one or two, but those are the ones I can remember right now. Yeah. So basically, um, the reserve, you want to completely eliminate the caps, and then you want to add, add a couple extra chains to the mix. Uh, regarding yeah, just to prove yeah. that we can add chains to a live system, right? A live network. Mm-hmm. So to show that it's ready to go ahead and start, you know, open the floodgates in a matter of speaking and start just adding chains. I don't know, yeah. Left and right. And so then after that, as far as adding new chains, it is much more of a floodgate situation, right? Where you might possibly have like a dozen new ones at a time or something like that. Well, we probably wouldn't do a dozen at a time. We probably, we probably like each churn, which happens every three days, we might add one chain. That's probably the fastest yeah. you could theoretically go. You probably wouldn't want to go any faster than that, but that's really fast. Like that's a, that's a crazy fast pace right there. We're probably more likely to see like one every two weeks or one every month or so, because it takes time to build that chain client and validate it and deploy it to uh, StageNet, get, you know, XChain JS, which is a JavaScript library to support it as well, get it into the smoke test, get it into, like there's a lot of work around every chain. And so mm-hmm. it's not as, it's not like something you can just bust out in an hour. Uh, and so we'll probably see it once every two weeks, maybe once every month or so, we'll get a new chain added. But like the funny thing is, is that we only have five chains that are supported today, which is uh, Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and BNB. Mm-hmm. And of those five chains, that's like 90 something percent of the total liquidity of crypto. Like you're already supporting, you know, the vast majority of, of yeah. the crypto sphere. And so every chain that you add is going to have, a, you know, a diminishing returns effect to it. And And so like, we're going to go from 92 to 93 and then or whatever the numbers are right and mm-hmm. then at some point after you get to like maybe 15 chains or 20 chains whatever the number is like every chain you add after that point is going to offer a very little value to the actual network itself right so mm-hmm. this, we're not going to be adding like every chain underneath the sun we're probably only going to add like maybe 15 or 20 chains to be honest with you the ones mm-hmm. that actually have economic value you know, decent trade volume that actually would provide value to the network as a whole. Um, and that will probably won't be, you know, more than 15 or 20 in my opinion, but it's not up to me to decide these things. Mm-hmm. Again, it's up to the community to decide how many chains we want to add and which chains these, these things will be. I, I mean, I have no idea personally. I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of going up what the community tells us what they want to add. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, and what is the community mechanism for this? And that's always a, it's always one of those like the ultimate questions in decentralized governance is what is what constitutes a community what constitutes community input and stuff like that so is it just you see demand from people is it node operators like a percentage of node operators start talking about this is it you yeah. see different parts of like crypto communities stepping forward and building their own integration getting liquidity and stuff like that and then at after that which who makes the ultimate decision on these kinds of things? Yeah, in the end, it's going to be the node operators. They're the ones that actually run the software, right, mm-hmm. of the network and get to choose what changes are made or not made. Mm-hmm. And they all go through their own as a voting process. They basically go through to adopt changes or to not adopt changes. Um, and so they are the ones that decide what chains get added and, and re- potentially removed in some cases and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so... We have also have a lot of um, 
I've heard the term synths thrown around, and I've mm-hmm. heard the term term Thorfi thrown around. And so, <laughs> yeah. do you want to just talk about what those things are, and then also a possible possible realistic timeline for deployment? Yeah, sure. So synthetics is the idea that because Thorchain has these pools, these liquidity pools for every mm-hmm. asset in the network, be Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Tether, or Doge, or whatever. Um, it always knows the value of or the price of any of those particular assets at any given time. And so that for that reason, it's capable of uh, minting an asset that is backed by the pool itself. So if you mint a synthetic Bitcoin, for example, on the Thorchain network, it's backed by the pool uh, of Bitcoin, which is comprised of you know Bitcoin and uh, room. So it's, fit, it's basically collateralized by 50% Bitcoin and 50% uh, uh, room. And so once you have this kind of uh, local asset, native asset to Thorchain uh, that represents the, the purchasing power of a Bitcoin or a, an, um, an Ether, uh, you can then use that asset for all sorts of different things, right? And that's going to be like the gateway into what we call ThorFi, for example. So uh, one of the com- concepts of ThorFi is what we call Thor Savings, mm-hmm. which is kind of like an interest account, right, where you can... Uh, have single asset exposure to a fixed rate income of whatever asset if you choose. So you can go ahead and take some Bitcoin, send it into the network, and then earn, you know, a fixed rate, 5%, 10%, 20%, depending on what the network's uh, economics push are. And you can earn you know, Bitcoin on your Bitcoin without being taking on the the economic or the um the um, uh, coin uh, uh, movements of room, right? You're only ever exposed to the price movements of Bitcoin, and then you're earning more Bitcoin on your Bitcoin. That's a yeah. pretty cool thing, a very significant thing. You're never, you're always increasing your the quantity of Bitcoin that you have, rather than uh, decreasing. And even like there's, there's no in, there's no uh, impermanent loss, for example, that you can be yeah. experiencing. And how is that, that handled? How how do you manage to take away the fluctuation risk of rune? even if it's based on it's based on the like for example let's say you do a bitcoin it would be yeah. based on the bitcoin pool which is half bitcoin and half rune right and right. so if it is then how how if the pool fluctuates on the one side how do you stop the actual uh the actual synth from fluctuating yeah so uh basically what happens is um the synth the collateral like all the synths together of the bitcoin pool is mm-hmm. worth x amount some amount, whatever that dollar figure is, yeah. right? And the network kind of carves out of the the ownership of that pool, whatever amount of units of ownership of that pool to be equal to the value of all those synthetic Bitcoins that exist on the network. Mm-hmm. So as Bitcoin price goes up or down or Rune's price goes up and down, the number of units of ownership of that pool increase or decrease depending upon whatever direction mm-hmm. needs to happen in order for it. So, the LPs of, the, of that pool take on that risk. And it basically puts them into a, um, a leveraged position, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? So if the price of Bitcoin goes up relative to room, right? They have a leveraged position in a downward angle, right? And the price of room goes up relative to Bitcoin, they have a leveraged position on the upward angle, right? So it's like they're taking on, um, they're LPing into a pool with a little bit of leverage thrown on top of it. So they'll, they'll earn more income or they'll lose more depending upon 
how that pool operates. Now, even if they lose more and they get into the red or whatever, that doesn't actually matter because the, the network has impermanent loss protection. So if you do experience a situation where you, you know, you're at a loss from where you started, after 100 mm -hmm. days, the network will say, you know what, we'll go ahead and, and front you and we'll give you some extra value so that when you pull out your, your, your Bitcoin, mm -hmm. you will, you know, will take that loss. The network will take the loss for you. And the reason why the network can do that is because I mean, we've done the math and, and the slip face model along with other things make it so profitable to, to provide liquidity into Thorchain that the number of people, the number of capital that has permanent loss after hundred days is like, it's very, very small. And so that doesn't really, it doesn't really matter in the context of the network at all. So, mm -hmm. um, so even that leverage, you take on that leverage position, even if you get leveraged down, the network still takes on that risk for you. But if you get leveraged up, then you, then you take all of that back with you, take, take it all back home. So from the, I guess the technical standpoint, someone deposits Bitcoin into a pool, then the pool mints a token or whatever token token as representation that is in this person's possession then then that compounds with interest or whatever according to you know the the agreement of whatever they did and then when they withdraw it then the that synth is i guess destroyed or burned or whatever and then mm -hmm. bitcoin comes out of the pool in the amount of whatever the the person's principal plus their interest would happen is that kind right. of the way it happens that's that's basically it in a nutshell. And how is that able to be really smooth in the user experience standpoint to where someone doesn't under, doesn't even see all that's happening? They just put yeah. in Bitcoin, they see their money go up, and then they just take more Bitcoin out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's only a single action to do one or a single action to the other, right? Mm -hmm. So you send Bitcoin in, and then you ask for it back, and mm -hmm. everything else is just abstracted away for you. It all happens, you know, all that complicated stuff about synthetics and blah, 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 and mm -hmm. units and these things. That's all done autonomously in the back end. You don't have to, it's it's like driving a car. You don't need to know how a car engine works. You just need to know how to use the steering wheel, right? More or yeah. less, right? It's conceptually the same. All you guys need to know is how to like send in funds and ask for them back. That That's the steering wheel part, part of it. All the complexity, the math, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is done on the back end. That's the engine of that car, so to speak. And you don't need to have an understanding of how that functions. You can if you want. You want to read about it, this documentation. You can read all about it. But um, but all you need to know is how to send in funds and how to take, ask for them back. Yeah. And so from the standpoint of a liquidity provider, if you are providing liquidity in... So comparing like a, let's just say a Bitcoin liquidity provider with a Bitcoin synth owner, I guess. The liquidity provider takes on the risk but potential reward of the fluctuations of the price of rune in 50% as well as the Bitcoin. And I'd assume that because it's riskier because of that, that I would get a higher rate providing liquidity than I would, obviously not all time, but I would tend to get a higher, higher returns providing liquidity than just getting a synth. Is that kind of the way it would work? Um, yeah. So when somebody adds, a, when somebody mints a synth by contributing mm -hmm. value into the pool, like the Bitcoin pool, for example, that you're contributing value to the pool and, but you're not getting any interest from that, right? Mm -hmm. Any swaps that happen and interest that's made in the pool don't go to you. You're a synth holder. You're not an LP. Mm -hmm. You're a synth holder. And yeah. so any value that you would have gotten by contributing that value to the pool, you're basically saying, I don't want that. I'm going to give it to the LPs, mm -hmm. right? 
And so that's that's why it's like a leveraged position because I'm I'm contributing to the the total value of the pool, but I'm not asking for any returns. I'm just asking mm -hmm. for stability, right? In a mm -hmm. sense. And so that's why you as an LP you like synthetics because people are contributing value to the pool, and that any swaps that they would have been getting, they're not getting. You're getting it instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so basically you've just negotiated a flat rate rather than an actual share in the earnings of the pool. Yes. Yeah. You're dismissing your earnings of the pool for the interest of maintaining the value of the assets you put into it effectively. Yeah. And so particularly for something like, let's just say a stable coin, if someone put in a BUSD or something like that and did some BUSD synths, then that operates more or less exactly like a USD savings account in terms of, although I'm sure very much higher returns than, you know, the terrible ones you get at a bank. And <laughs> it's it, but it's more still, than a half a percent. Yeah. I can probably tell you that. <laughs> yes. But it's just still stable. You don't have ups and downs of price. Just it's still pegged to the, I would say, downward stability of the US dollar, but that's a different subject. You're yep. pegged to that and then you're getting interest on top of that and at a very predictable right. rate. Yeah. Yeah. The, the goal of, of the store savings specifically is, is, is to get fixed rate income, right? Because mm -hmm. nobody in this space really does fixed rate for a whole host of reasons, which we can dive into if you want to. Mm -hmm. But fixed rate well, is like, in, in my, my respect, it's, it's my viewpoint. It's one of the most kind of um, unachieved, you know, important, important aspects of, of finance that we haven't seen yet much in, in, in crypto yet. And fixed rate allows people to have predictable yield, a predictable income, mm -hmm. which just changes the economics, changes the, the, the way that you value something quite significantly. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this is contributing to not just my asset, right? Or, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever, it's contributing to any asset, like BYOA, bring your own asset. Mm -hmm. That's even bigger. Yeah, and so uh, why isn't this really implemented widely in the crypto community? In terms sort of fixed, of fixed rates? Rate. Yeah. Well, fixed rates often use as a mechanism to be able to um, put kind of guardrails on mm -hmm. the economics of a system. So uh, in something like in Aave, for example, or Comp, whatever, their interest rate is relative to the amount of the asset that they have in the system. So they, someone might deposit a bunch of ETH, for example, and then they start loaning out that ETH to people. And as the, the quantity of, of ETH in the system gets lower or higher, that will change the economics to, to either call back more ETH because the interest rates become so high or people won't take out new loans or whatever, or vice versa, mm -hmm. right? Um, in Thorchain's case, uh, we think we can do it because not only does the network produce enough yield on its own to be able to supply even like a 10% fixed rate or something like this. Um, we think we can do it in a way where we um, take the, the savings people and we pin them against the, the lending people. Mm -hmm. And so that the interest that, that they make, that the savings people make, it comes from the interest that is produced, like the income that's produced from lending out the asset. It's mm -hmm. somewhat similar how a bank functions to some degree without the quantitative easing bullshit. Of course. Um, uh, so, so by pinning these two against each other, you actually create um, stability, right? Mm -hmm. We have a, a, a protocol on liquidity idea that's something similar to Ohm in the sense that will be a, a stabilizing factor on top of that just to add more 
um, um, stability in that scenario. But we can pin these things in a way that we can produce fixed rate income, um, which I think is like would be a game changer in the space significantly. Yeah, that's for sure. What other things are go are planned on being part of this whole Thorify element? Uh, so Thor Savings is the first one. Lending is the second one. Um, we have we haven't like publicly discussed quite the design yet. We're still kind of thinking on it, and we're going to be mm -hmm. um, surfacing it with the community in the next you know hopefully week or two or so. Right now, it's being floated with uh, big investors like Delphi, Multicoin, and this stuff to get their feedback to make sure we're not, you know, missing anything or didn't think of X, Y, or Z or whatever, mm -hmm. or whatever. Because it's, the implementation of this lending protocol is very different from everything else we've seen in the space, and it does things that nobody does or thought was even possible. Um, for example, one of the things we're talking, we're thinking about is that the, the collateralization. Is not going to be like 150% or 200% like you see on like maker DAO or something like this. It'll be 100% mm -hmm. the swap value of the asset that your that your collateral is, right? Mm -hmm. And so people think that's not possible because X, Y, and blah, blah, blah. But in our case, the way that it's designed, it actually is feasible. Um, we can get to that probably another time, another review, you know, once we float the, the actual document out to the community so they can see it first before I talk about too much detail here. But there's a lot of things about that, um, that about that design. It's very different. You know, even uh, no liquidations is actually one of the things that is being discussed. So you can't get liquidated. Uh, it's another kind of concept that people think is not possible, but it is. I think it is, it is at least. How might something like that be possible? Uh, so the... I, I'm kind of hesitant to go into, the, go into quite the details at this time because I want the community to see it, the full document in its full context. Yeah. But the short of it is that if the collateral is yield bearing, like LP units, right? Mm -hmm. um, that it always will, on the long term, it'll always be, become solvent because it's always generating yield. And the, every, and the yield that it's generating is increasing over time because it's, it's getting yield on the yield, right? On the mm -hmm. compounding in that sense. And so over, the network can take that stance of being like a long-term investor because mm -hmm. it's the network, right? It'll, you can look at a hundred year, you know, timeline if it really wants to, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't have to in this case, you know, but even if a, uh, an asset performs extremely well over a long period, like the network should be able to handle it, no problem. So um, people can look at the deep, like the details of how that implemented and the, and the doc that's going to be released uh, in the next week or two, but it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So I guess under something like that, you wouldn't let someone who's insolvent then get their collateral back then, right? You'd have to, you'd have to hold on to it until it was, until it was either solvent or they'd have to deposit some more in there to make sure everything worked. Yeah. yeah. So what they would do in that case is mm -hmm. if they wanted to get their collateral back, they had to give back the asset that they were lent out. Right. Mm -hmm. if they wanted to like close it down early. Um, but the network, because it's has is yield bearing collateral, over a long period of time, it'll pay off your, your loan for you, very similar mm -hmm. to like what Alchemix is doing, right? And so you don't even need to, in most cases, you won't even need to pay back the original loan that you took out, right? You just won't mm -hmm. have access to your collateral. And then once the loan is paid back with all the you know interest that's made from that collateral, you'll get your collateral back, right? And then you mm -hmm. can sell it or you can take out another loan or like, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do with it. Yeah, that's some pretty... Um interesting stuff obviously it's cutting edge as far as the crypto space is concerned but the entire lending sector 
of crypto is it is very different from the lending sector of the fiat world, which yeah. it's funny because in the fiat world, you get loans based on, I guess, credit rating based on a lot of times it's like nothing kind of like your personhood as a human being. And they're willing to take a gamble based on it because, you know, the government has ways of cracking down on you if you, you know, do some, some things. Yep. I'm sure there's a lot of risk calculated and, and things like that. And if you don't, no one exists, there are no people on the blockchain, right? It's just, you know, balances and stuff like that. And so that's why collateralized loans, you know, take place. But then I'm thinking like, okay, well, what if I wanted to buy a house and I want to take out a, a loan, do I have enough? I basically would have to have like enough money today to like buy the house free and clear but i'm not just selling all my crypto for that i have to do that and then there's the um the sort of panic attack every time like the price of like the underlying network like say ethereum dips too low and i'm like oh no i'm about to get liquidated but yeah, yeah. that kind of it, it's kind of like bringing it back into a more i guess modern context even though it still doesn't work on the same i guess i would say old and failed system of like the fiat lending world yeah, so like one of the problems with the lending space, um, well, the lending space in the fiat world is like very different because you have like mm -hmm. credit scores and like you can go ahead and declare bankruptcy and like that's kind of, you know, fine in a sense, right? And mm -hmm. there's like a, a mathematical probability of what how percentage of loans will, you know, they'll mm -hmm. never get back because of bankruptcy and what they won't. And so they just take, take on that risk, right? And they can do that because they're they're an individual entity that exists and all, all this kind of stuff. But the problem I see with lending today in the crypto space is that it's I find it to be very stressful. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who's like taking a loan is very stressed up because like one you have to be like constantly looking at the price of like let's just say taking Ethereum for example and making sure the Ethereum prices your collateral price doesn't go down too low or you always get liquidated because then you just lose a bunch of money right and you don't want that. So you have to like kind of keep your kind of finger on that pulse and make sure you don't get kind of screwed in the end, right? Mm -hmm. And in the other sense, like you have this like variable rate interest on your loan, right? And so they can just it can just go ahead and skyrocket up to forty percent one day. And you're like, oh shit, I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm getting really hit hard here by this yeah. interest rate that just kind of skyrocketed because of something happened in the crypto space or like whatever happened. And so like I so I find that stuff to be very very stressful, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't really yeah, do a whole same. lot of lending myself personally just because I don't want to have a part-time job of like checking the prices and checking my status and like making sure mm -hmm. I don't get, you know, hit too, hit too hard. But in, in, in our perspective and what we're trying to do with lending on Thorchain is not only making it cross chain so you can like actually get Bitcoin loans for the first time in human history, which that's, you know, by itself is pretty amazing, but mm -hmm. also make it so that if you do take out a loan, you're not going to be, you know, stressed as fuck trying to like, you know, make sure you don't get, you know, liquidated or get interest rates get too high. Um, we're aiming for us to be uh, fixed rate interest on the savings as well as fixed rate interest on the lending part as well. And so by removing those those kind of fluctuating and, and critical aspects of the current system, um, mm -hmm. we feel that we've designed something that is uh, fundamentally better and easier and less stress and less risk uh, than what you would see in, you know, a MakerDAO or, you know, something else out there. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how the world kind of work on this because i haven't had you know i haven't been using a bank account in the last five six years or whatever it's been i've just been doing the, the the crypto world and there's certain benefits and reliefs and certain limitations of that and i'm always kind of trying to see how you know what i the way i'm living 
is going to grow to be the way everyone's living. And there's kind of yeah. some some interesting kind of things on that that front. So do you we're talking about um, you know, how other lending systems in crypto might have a little bit more stress in them. And then also as far as earlier we we're talking about how in order to participate in DeFi you needed to completely do like non native kind of bridged wrapped things and all the complexity and risk that's in, involved with that. And basically, do you see long-term Thorchain eating up, or the, or the Thor and its children, one could say, eating up a lot of present DeFi's lunch because of just the, like, who's going to be lending on the old Ethereum models, I guess, today, if they could do ThorFi and not have those, those risks and stresses? And who's going to be swapping a million different little wrapped this wrapped that if they can just do it natively on Thorchain. Um that's a complicated question in some sense. Um everybody's different. Everybody's looking yeah. for different attributes and what what they're trying to accomplish, what their risk factors are, what they're willing the risk they're willing to take, what they're trying, you know. And so that creates a different perspective or mindset that you're looking for different attributes. And maybe those are aligned with Thorchain's offerings. And maybe it's not. It depends upon who you are. What you you know, uh, you know. Maybe you're you know an, an ETH maxi. So you just love it. If anything is not on ETH, you're just like doesn't exist, right? And so yeah. you just kind of ignore it completely. Uh, that's very well possible. But um, there are some cases where I think it doesn't make sense to use Thorchain. And for example, um, the the gas for ethereum is more expensive on ethereum than it would be for like a uniswap or a sushi right and the reason mm -hmm. why that is is because it takes two transactions you know mm -hmm. and the, the network has to charge for those two transactions so it's always going to be more expensive in terms of gas fees fees might be smaller in general on thorchain with a sufficiently deep enough pool but in that sense you might say oh i'm not going to use thorchain i'm going to use uni to swap my ethereum for you know tether or whatever mm -hmm. Um, lending is a bit different. Um, I think lending requires time and, and, and to prove its legitimacy, prove its stability, prove its, you know, uh, it's earned stripes in a sense. So it won't be, obviously it won't be something quick. Um, but I do think over the long term, over the long term, if we did end up just kind of deploying this lending protocol, as we kind of see it now, um, there is not a strong argument why you'd want to use a different platform Thorchain because it allow you to, to have access to more of your funds, have less risk and liquidations mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff. So it becomes a little bit kind of um, obvious um, yeah. to why you want to use it. And if it's not obvious to you, then uh, Lord help you. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for most people, it will be pretty obvious. And it just will take time for people to like wrap their heads around the concept and how it functions and, and let it kind of have six months of, of kind of proving ground to prove mm -hmm. that it, you know, does what it accomplishes and, and that the design is, is solid. Same thing with like UST. If you think about UST from, from mm -hmm. Terra, like it's a really popular, well-designed, uh, stable coin. Um, and, but like, you know, we don't know over the long term how it's going to succeed. Right. I'm, I'm bullish on UST personally. I think it's a great design and all these things, but we have to see it go through a bear market, a bull, bull market and everything in between to know that it's, this algorithmic approach to to its pin to the dollar mm -hmm. is going to be you know is going to work, and the only way you're going to know that 
you know, you can talk all day and draw on the, on the whiteboard and, you know, come up with all these different kind of like uh, reports saying that it'll always be stable. But the only reason, the only way to really know is just, just to try it, put it on the world yeah. and see if it succeeds or not. I think it will, but it's going to take probably, in my opinion, five years uh, for it to prove itself uh, to be reliable in terms of being a stable asset. Um, and so I think lending on Thorchain's case will be something somewhat similar and that mm -hmm. it's going to take time to prove that its design um, isn't fundamentally flawed in some fashion or form. Yeah, that's for, that's for sure. Now, a couple last things. First, scaling and privacy. So first, for scaling, uh, let's the word of the day with DeFi because pretty much I, would, I wouldn't say everything, but I, the vast majority of non-Ethereum DeFi's success is based on Ethereum's inability to scale to meet market demand at the present time. I mean, there's I'm sure there's a lot of other DeFi things for other purposes out there. There will always be a proliferation thereof. But it seems like, you know, Ethereum hasn't scaled terribly well. Just the fact that I can't move most of my stuff. Maybe I'm a little salty personally, but whatever. It's so... <laughs> what can you see as scaling do you see scaling as being a problem or an issue to solve in the future of thorchain uh okay well so the problem of scalability is never solved mm -hmm. like you always it's always a, a can that you kick down the road like you mm -hmm. will never be a moment in time when like we've solved scalability like that's never the case mm -hmm. i don't care how many transactions per second you say your network can you know, sustain I don't care what you say. It's always, it's, it's just a, a fundamental thing of like, think of it like a swimming pool. You can choose to build mm -hmm. your swimming pool as large as you like, but at some point it has a limitation of how much water it can hold, right? Whether mm -hmm. you do a small pool or like uh, an Olympic size swimming pool or whatever, it doesn't matter. There's always limitations. So will Thorchain have scalability issues? Absolutely, right? Once it gets to a certain level of success, it will start to have scalability issues and I need to figure out how do we solve that? Now, yeah. you can do it in two different ways uh ways to think about it um you can scale the the layer one and by optimizing things maybe sharding things like ethereum is has is doing in this ethereum 2.0 design or you can think about it in the context of putting a layer two right on something on top of thorchain which is also might be possible i haven't actually given layer two much of a thought to be honest with you just because like years down the road it doesn't really warrant my time to think too much about it but those are the two ways you can think about it. And so Thorchain will definitely have scalability issues. Ethereum will, will partially solve their scalability issues with sharding to some degree. It won't, like I said, it won't solve scalability. It'll just improve the situation. Um, and, and then layer two of, you know, of Ethereum, whether it be optimism or rollups or whatever it mm -hmm. is you're talking about will help with the scalability issue. But again, it will never actually solve scalability entirely. So it only takes more pressure and more time and more adoption of the space of more of like normies or pre-corners to come mm -hmm. back, to come into the space and say, oh, I'm going to start swapping and trading, providing liquidity, lending, you know, whatever the thing is. And it will always cause uh, scalability issues over the long term. Yeah. And so basically there will always be an issue, but you guys are kind of focused on making sure it's not an issue to the best of your ability. That's kind of yeah, like LDR. In terms of like Thorchain's perspective, like you could literally fill the entire block of Ethereum plus uh, Bitcoin plus Litecoin plus Bitcoin Cash plus like a bunch more chains. 
Like literally mm-hmm. fill the entire block with like swaps and like Thorchain can like support that. Like it wouldn't, mm-hmm. it wouldn't struggle too much with that. Uh, and I mean, even right now it's, it has a limitation of, I think it's like a hundred swaps per block every, you know, five seconds. And that's an mm-hmm. artificial limit put on top of it for, for, for design purposes. There's no reason why you could just increase it to 200 if you wanted to, like that would be fine too. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't think we're going to hit scalability issues anytime in the near future in part because, uh, Thorchain will probably never really be a like general purpose smart contracting layer, like Ethereum is, or mm-hmm. like, you know, Avalanche is, or, or, or like uh, Terra is. Um, its design is not trying to replicate the, I, what I see as the mistake of Ethereum of trying to be the one all, be all, like this is the end of crypt, like other chains, you know, thing that will solve all problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that won't work for any technology ever in the history of the world. So they won't work here either. And so, the the block space of, of Thorchain will always be fixated on doing what it does best, which is anything around its liquidity pools. It's not trying to do derivative trading or like options or like derivative uh, other forms of like crazy trading. There are other people who can do that space. And what they can do is they can just borrow from Thorchain's synthetics, you know, and being a synthetic Bitcoin mm-hmm. by IBC from Thorchain over to, you know, uh, Injective, for example, and do derivatives trading over there. Right. And that's the way that you scale like DeFi in general is you just you have each application be its own like chain. And that way you, it, it can scale much better, much faster, rather than having all the applications of the world be on one layer one, which is what Ethereum is trying to do, which mm-hmm. is why Ethereum is like so absurdly expensive now to, you know, do transactions and all this kind of stuff, which is highly problematic. And, and like I mind you that like like crypto in general, Ethereum is like not adopted yet. Like it's still like it's still yeah. a minority thing. Like it's not. It hasn't. The world hasn't like got onto Ethereum yet, and and that's it's already a big issue, right? And there, I know, yeah. and there, I know, an ETH person here would argue with me about layer two and like ETH two point and like all these things, and those are valid arguments to be had. But mm-hmm. even with those things, like it's still not ready, right? And neither is like Solana or Terra or Avalanche or any of these other guys. Like any of these guys would would collapse under like if the world actually adopted crypto at this mm-hmm. time. Right, the the infrastructure of crypto is not ready for the world yet. Everyone was always talking about, oh, how do I make crypto more easy to use so get more Asset people into it? It's like, yeah, but like we're not even ready for them yet. <laughs> we yeah, have, our, technologically, we're just not ready for the world to adopt even Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these things. It's just like we need to work on scalability, and before we get to the usability of like how do I secure mm-hmm. my wallet and make it easy to use and all these things. We're not even there yet. You're, you're, you're eight steps ahead. <laughs> we have to solve more immediate issues. Yeah. And so then the final thing then is privacy, which it's something that I, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, I'm old enough in the space that I remember when you just had one Bitcoin address. It was just a static address. That's all you did. And I remember being a confused, angry boomer when we had HD wallets. And why do I have a new address every time? I don't get this stuff. And... <laughs> So there was all that stuff. And then, of course, using CoinJoin and things like that, using more encrypted things. It seems like in the ETH and DeFi sort of world, almost that privacy is taken a step backwards beyond that. So like most of these ETH type chains have, you know, a static address. They don't do UTXOs. And 
a when it's just sending back and forth between like, oh, I sent you money, how much you have in this purse wallet, like that's enough of a problem. But then when you start seeing like when you have financial systems, not just sending some money here and there, when you have financial systems run on this stuff and it's all super transparent, I would say, right? So like if I want to, you know, LP for ThorChain, I send to, you know, to a certain address, it goes into a pool and stuff. And then it should be relatively trivial for someone who is, I guess, malicious, wants to just see how much I have and then, you know, find if I'm worth doxing my address and attacking my house or whatever over. Uh, it seems like it's relatively easy to figure all that stuff out. So yeah, is there anything that can really be done about this in the short term? Or do you have any thoughts about how to make it make people's finances more confidential in the world where ThorChain represents more of real people's actual financial activity? Yeah, so we, we thought a lot about privacy in the beginning. And we opted to not include privacy into the core protocol for a good reason. Because in the end, the network has to sign transactions, has to know what transactions to sign outward. Like you send in some Bitcoin, mm -hmm. you're trying to get some Ethereum. At some level, somebody's got a signed transaction that sends Ethereum to some address, right? And because of that, you could encrypt that information in a way that only the like validators of the network would know mm -hmm. the information. It wouldn't be public. It would be like just this, you know, validator set would actually have the understanding of what was what and when and where. Um, but the problem with that is that as soon as you do that, you create an incentive to run a validator node outside the context of the economic purpose of actually want to be a validator node, mm -hmm. right? Uh, my video pause. I'm not sure if I still have you. Yeah, I can still hear the audio. Just. Just go ahead. You're good now. Okay, sorry. Uh, so that would incentivize somebody like the IRS or the NSA or you know some three-letter alphabet you know agency, foreign and domestic, to run a node because it allows them to be able to gather information and spy on people in a way that uh, is against the actual economic imperatives of the network. Mm -hmm. So we actually work against the network's best interest to do to do privacy in this particular case. So instead of actually doing privacy on the core protocol of ThorChain. Our kind of thinking was that we will integrate with privacy um, chains and have mm -hmm. them be the way. So you, you pull on the power of privacy, whether it be Monero or Zcash mm -hmm. or what have you, and utilizing their uh, implementation of privacy to to give you privacy if you choose to have it. Mm. Yeah. So basically, what you do is you have to make sure all your you know T's are crossed and your I's are dotted on your personal transaction level so that by the time you go to make a swap, for example, everything is already churned, encrypted, whatever, whatever the deal is, so that if people see, oh, this much was made for this much of a swap, the amount of data is, it's not really super useful to anyone trying to track you because you've already made yourself very hard to track. And so this extra data doesn't really correlate to you and your stash as a person, as long as you practice good, you know, privacy on the way in and then on the way out. Yeah. So one way you could approach this is, um, you have like a private Bitcoin wallet and a public Bitcoin wallet, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, if you want to move funds into your private Bitcoin wallet, you can swap your Bitcoin to like, let's just say Zcash, for example. And now mm -hmm. you hold it in some sort of Zcash wallet address. And then you swap it from Zcash 
into your private Bitcoin wallet. And so that little kind of hop, you won't be able to understand from the outside that those two things are correlated or connected in any sense, especially if you swap in a smart way. Um, and so then when you want to move funds out, you just kind of do the reverse swap into your Zcash or the Monero um, address and then swap to your public Bitcoin address. So you're only exposed to, you know, those the Monero or whatever for a short period, relatively short period of time. And then you move to Bitcoin and you, you know, give your, your friend uh, some, some, some sats for, for buying dinner the other night or something like this. Yeah. And so basically that's kind of achievable through that. It's kind of funny because on the other side of things, it, which, which works very different from ThorChain in quite many ways, Incognito is trying to do a similar thing, except the other way around, where you don't have any privacy going in. But once you're in, it's you do kind of have privacy in the swaps back and forth or whatever. But it's a completely different system. But it's as yeah, I'm, I'm sure you. The mentioned secret network is also doing something similar to that too. If you look into the secret mm -hmm. network and other Cosmos, mm -hmm. they they do uh, kind of like inks, uh, encrypted smart contracts i think yeah and so basically maybe that would be a second part of the answer is it's not just look take care of your privacy on the way in and out and don't don't worry so much about the thorchain part of things but also there's other projects that are more specifically tailor-made towards having privacy at that core core swapping kind of level yeah another way to think about it is that like ThorChain's not trying to solve every problem or do everything perfectly. That's just mm -hmm. a little bit too crazy in a, in a sense. So instead, like it's basically enabling you access to the powerful aspects of whatever chain it is you want to talk about, mm -hmm. whether it be the store of value of Bitcoin, the privacy of Monero, the smart contract of Ethereum, the you know um, stable coins of Terra, like or or whatever it is you you want to have access to, like we kind of let everybody else do what they do and we focus mm -hmm. on what we do and we focus and do that thing well and they do their, their thing well rather than us trying to like, okay, we're going to do privacy. We're going to do this. We're going to do this, da, 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 like and smart contracting and like all these things. And it just becomes such a crazy um, snowball that can fall apart in any given, <laughs> given second in a sense to trying to solve every problem in the world. And so we're, we're, we recognize that every, we see a multi-chain future and we see the value that each chain individually proposes and we want to just enable you to have access to the value of whatever chain it is that you want to access to. Um, so, and so we don't think about privacy too much in terms of the core protocol. You want privacy, mm -hmm. use something that is specifically designed for that and does a lot better job of it than we probably could. Yeah. And that kind of, uh, brings back the, the popular, uh, crypto meme of the intelligence bell curve at the beginning. It's like coin does one thing in the middle. No, you have to do everything under the sun. And then on the intelligent level, back to coin does one thing, not necessarily <laughs> one thing, but it focuses on what it's good for. And then other chains focus on what they're good for. And yeah. I guess that in it, in and of itself strengthens the value proposition of Thorchain because when you want a different project to do a different thing really well, it's easy to hop between one and the other. Right. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, um, I don't know if this is too obscure of a reference, but like in Linux, mm -hmm. I don't know if mm -hmm. your users are familiar with Linux, but like the mentality in the in like program within mm -hmm. the Linux system, it's like you do one thing and you do it very, very well. Like every command line tool in Linux pretty much yeah. does a single thing and is that single thing very, very well, right? Even something is like, I want to read a file, I want to write to a file, I want to, you know, get the last 10 lines of a file. Like all those things are like separate, like mm -hmm. uh, commands or separate 
programs. And so you just basically, you, you like daisy chain together or you, we call it piping in the Linux world, but like yeah. you daisy chain together, like, you know, five or 10 commands that do something, you know, and parsing information and awking this and then setting that and then TRing that. And then do, like all these kind of funny little commands that exist. And so mm -hmm. you're not, you don't, there is no one command that does everything in Linux and there never will be, and there shouldn't be. And you want to focus on everything does very narrow perspective of what it accomplishes and that way you can just daisy chain the things together or interoperability is kind of like the kind of a word that people use in the crypto space to mm -hmm. to make all these things connect and be of higher value yeah interoperability is the word of the day well this has been yeah. quite the illuminating chat uh where could people find more about what you're up to and then what are what is thorchain up to yeah, so Thorchain, you can follow the project at thorchain.org if you want to go to the website. There's a Discord that's very um, healthy and, and people chatting all the time. You can ask questions mm -hmm. and, and kind of participate in the conversations. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I always say don't follow me. I'm, I'm useless. I'm meaningless. Always follow the mm -hmm. community. They're much more useful than I am. But uh, yeah, start with thorchain.org. There's docs.thorchain.org if you want to learn about the, the economics, the technology, the cryptography all that stuff that's been innovated as part of this project, all that stuff is available to those docs. Uh, and come in the Discord, ask some questions. Mm -hmm. All right, well, fantastic. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe so you don't miss an episode and donate to support the show by going to my Cointree page. That's cointr.ee slash the desert links and leave a message with your donation. Check out the show's sponsors. Live on crypto with BitRefill. Buy absolutely anything with crypto with ShopinBit. Avoid content censorship with Odyssey. Protect your privacy online with NordVPN. Get paid to search with PreSearch. All links are in the show notes.